Thanks, Charlotte, one of our graduating seniors. Appreciate you leading us. And hey, good morning. Welcome. Glad to be with you all this morning. Um, I went last week to a board meeting at Covenant Seminary, where I went to seminary, where a lot of great and exciting things are happening. But the most interesting thing that happened was that they gave me as swag the perfect mask. And I've been looking for this mask for a year. And hopefully I'm not going to actually have to wear it for very much longer. But after a year, it's kind of like, oh, I have found you. But anyway... um, I wish, I'd, I wish I had this like last, last May, but, but I didn't. Uh, but that's a preview to say that this all is going to come to an end at some point. So, um, yes, it is. Uh, while, uh, we, but, but waiting is, a, waiting is a good thing because it reminds us about the postures with which we wait, which is one of the things uh, that the Apostle Paul teaches us here in Ephesians chapter 4. Um, Ephesians chapter 4 is uh, a, a transition point in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, really from, you know, kind of this deep, rich theology about what is true about the gospel to its implications for your life. Um, now, the gospel has implications for your life at all times, but, uh, but this is a, a demarcation point in the letter to the Ephesians. And I want to take this opportunity, actually, because, I mean, this is where we are in our sermon series, but it is particularly applicable in many ways uh, to college graduates and to high school graduates, uh, as y'all are preparing to enter into new phases in your life, but as it is applicable to them, and I, I want to insert a charge, as it were, in there at some point, but it's also uh, applicable to all of us in that way. So read with me now uh, from Ephesians chapter 4. I'm just going to read the first three verses. Sorry. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we do pray that you would attend to us now as you promised to do, that you would cultivate into us uh, that work of of your uh, Spirit that would allow us and motivate us and equip us to live worthy of the calling that we have in our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. When you're standing um, on a walkway that is suspended four stories over an atrium in a hotel, there are a lot of noises that you'd be okay to hear, but one of them is not a pop. Um, And that is actually what the people who were standing on that walkway heard. Uh, they, they were standing there. It was a big party. There were a lot of people in the hotel. There was an atrium. There was a walkway across the atrium at the second floor. And there was a walkway across the atrium at the fourth floor. They were right on top of each other. And those who were on the walkway on, uh, above the first floor, fourth floor heard a pop. And the walkway actually dropped a couple of inches. And then it stayed there. And then it fell. And it fell on top of the walkway that was above the second floor. And the weight of that made it go all the way down to the ground floor. It was a massive 
tragedy because there were over a thousand people there that were gathered for a party. Now, if you're old enough, you may remember this. This was in 1981. It happened at the Hyatt Regency Hotel in Kansas City, Missouri. It was a great tragedy where 114 people lost their lives and another 216 people were injured when that fourth floor suspended walkway broke free of its moorings, fell onto the second floor uh, suspended walkway, and then both of them came crashing to the floor. The subsequent investigation revealed the extent of what a tragedy it really was because it revealed something horrendous that you may understand, but it's horrendous nevertheless because due to budget constraints and value engineering, design changes in those suspended walkways had been made. They were made out of materials that were actually not sufficient to bear the weight that they were trying to be rated for. And so they made less expensive options that could be accomplished more quickly. Uh, And when one bit of weight over the limit was added to that bridge at that party, it came crashing all the way to the ground and people lost their lives. People had put their faith in those walkways, but those walkways weren't strong enough. They weren't strong enough to hold the weight that people had put in them. The construction was poor and they gave way. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul turns his attention uh, from what my old professor in seminary, Brian Chappell, used to say was from the indicative to the imperative, from what is true to what to do, is uh, the way that he used to phrase that. Um, And if you ever get that order reversed, if you ever start to live a Christian life, which is not actually a Christian life, but if you ever start to live your life where you say, well, if I just live this way, then God will love me. If I just do these things, then God will love me. If I stop doing these things, then God will love me. Well, as Brian Chapel would say, that's not just a sub-Christian message. That's actually an anti-Christian message. The message of the gospel is that Jesus loves you. And then there are implications and outworkings of that love in your life. If you ever get the reverse, it's like standing on a suspended walkway that can't bear the weight, that cannot bear the weight of your confession. But it is also true, and the Bible is clear about this from the very beginning to the very end, that how we live our lives matters. It does matter how it is that we live. It matters because it's a testimony to the truth and the power of the Holy Spirit that Paul says is at work in our lives. It matters as a testimony to a watching world that God is real, that Jesus is who he said he is, that Jesus did do what he said he did, and that submitting ourselves to Christ by faith really is the only way to true and eternal life. So Paul, in this transition from the indicative to the imperative, from what is true to what to do, says this. You are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, for a life that testifies to the truth of the gospel. You're saved by grace alone. You did not do it. Jesus did it. You are saved by faith alone. You're not earning your salvation. You're simply putting your trust in Jesus who did it for you. And that is for a life that testifies to the truth of the gospel. 
Every aspect of the way that you and I live our lives is impacted by the power of the gospel. That's Paul's point in verse 1 when he uses the word therefore as a major transition in the entire letter. Now here's a secret to reading the Bible. If you want to understand the Bible... Um, and you're reading along, and the author says, therefore, and Paul does it all the time, and you really want to know like what he's actually saying, you have to ask yourself this question. What is the therefore, therefore? Key question in the Bible. You see the word therefore, that's your question. What is the therefore, therefore? Because what Paul is saying by using that word is that everything that he's about to write stands on the foundation of what he has already written. It is based upon the truth of those things that have come before. And so the answer to that question, what the therefore is therefore, is really the entire summary of all of chapters one through three. But if we want to boil it down, if we want to kind of choose a, a bedrock verse that Paul is using as his transition of like, this is the summary of what is true. Now I'm going to tell you how to live in light of it. We can go to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, already he was foreshadowing what he was about to write here in chapter 4, almost two whole chapters later. Chapters 1 through 3 go into great and glorious detail regarding what it means to be saved by grace through faith. And now in chapter 4, Paul turns his attention to the good works that result from our salvation. Not that precede our salvation, very different, that result from our salvation. And he has already used the word, he's already hinted at the word that he uses here in chapter 4 that we walk in. So, Here's what Paul tells us uh, in the first three verses of chapter four. That the one who is saved by grace through faith walks consistently. And that the one saved by grace through faith walks counterculturally. We walk consistently and we walk counterculturally. First, if you're saved by grace through faith, you're called to walk consistently. Now, first, let's talk about that word walk. Why does Paul use that word? Why does Paul not say, you know, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to, uh, to, to live uh, a, a good life. I urge you as, as a prisoner of the Lord to do good things and not do bad things. I urge you as a you know, prisoner of the Lord uh, to do smart things and just don't do dumb things. You know, that's not what he says. He says to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Well, what he really means by that is a very purposeful word because it points to a life, not just a moment in time, but it points to a life of consistency between what it is that you confess with your mouth to be true and what you exhibit with your life to actually be true. Um, that's what that word walk means. To walk in a manner worthy of confession is simply to have, well, simply. That's not simple. It is to have a consistent posture between what you profess to be true about the gospel and how you live your life in light of what you profess to be true. Now, remember this. 
Paul is urging us along this path. And if you were here last week, what Paul actually did was he prayed for us that we would live consistently. And so if Paul is praying for us that that we would be able to do this, and Paul is urging us that we would be able to do this, and Paul is pointing us back to the power of the Holy Spirit, and he's pointing us back to our, our salvation that we have in Christ, it must mean that this is not the easiest thing in the world for us, right? It must mean that there's some difficulty attended to this. We'll always struggle with this. We'll never get this exactly right. We'll never be perfect in this life. We'll always struggle with consistency between what we believe and how we live. But it is worthwhile to be reminded, nevertheless, in fact, actually it's something to pray for in our own lives and one of the things that Paul really points to here in chapter 4 is that this is really our mission to how we urge one another within the body of Christ is to live consistently between what we profess to be true and what our lives manifest so what the scriptures urge us in is to walk in a manner worthy of our calling to manifest the gospel transformation of our hearts and how we live. Now let's stop for just a second and unpack this a little bit because this is really important and frankly really difficult, honestly. Because on the one hand, this kind of sounds obvious, right? Hey, you say you're a Christian, so your life should look different. Simple, right? Well, not really. It's not that simple. Because on the other hand, even though it sounds pretty obvious, the Bible spends a ton of time encouraging us in this, right? The Bible spends a lot of time, you know, helping us to remember that when we fail, we can always run back to Christ and we can repent and we confess and we can be, you know, renewed in the gospel. And one of the things that this must mean is that this consistency between our profession and our life is not normal for us. And the fact of the matter is that it is, definitionally speaking, not natural for us. If the Bible is to be believed and we are born in sin, surely I was sinful from birth from the time my mother conceived me, it is by definition not our nature to live consistently uh, a Christian life. It is definitionally spirit bred in us this is a spiritual life meaning this is a life that is cultivated in us through the work and through the power of the holy spirit and and this has always been true the fact is that the easiest way to live a christian life in our culture the easiest and simplest way is to bifurcate our lives and to separate them uh, to, to, to separate our lives between a sacred part of our lives, and this is the part that we want God to be involved in, and then to have a, what some people would call a secular part of our lives, a non-explicitly religious part of our lives, and this is the part that we want to kind of run and we don't really want God messing with. This is kind of like our default posture to the Christian life. And so the quote-unquote sacred part of our lives, you know, that's the part that we believe are, is the part of our lives that belongs to God are things like going to church, uh, sending our children to Sunday school, maybe being a part of a parachurch ministry like Young Life, going to a Christian camp in the summer, being a part of a Bible study at church or, you know, being a part of a Bible study with our friends. We believe that this is sacred stuff because this is all explicitly religious in nature. 
And so we say, okay, this part of my life belongs to God. This is, this is the God part of my life, right? Now, the secular part of our lives, we would think, are those parts that, we don't, that aren't explicitly religious. And if we're really honest with ourselves at the end of the day, we really may not want God kind of meddling in because it gets a little bit uncomfortable and messy when God shows up at these parts of our lives. And you know, and these are things like how we live at school, our lives at school, or our lives vocationally, our lives in the workplace, how it is that we participate in sports and in other activities, what it is that we end up doing with our friends on a Friday night or on a Saturday night, you know, what it is that we look at on TV or on the computer when we're all by ourselves. This is like the part of our lives that deals with our fraternity lives and our sorority lives and how we spend time with our neighbors, our social clubs, our social media presence. We think of that as like non-religious, that's secular, and we don't really want God in there because we like it better when he's not in there. Now I want to camp here for just a second and I want to do that largely as a charge to our graduating high school seniors and our graduating college students. Um, Now first of all the Bible has no category whatsoever for what I all of that stuff that I just took five minutes talking about. The Bible has no category whatsoever between separating our lives between a sacred component and a secular component. We are human beings who have been breathed into us, the spirit of God. We are, you know, what theologians call a psychosomatic unity. We are a body-soul nexus put together as singular human beings. We don't have a sacred component. We don't have a secular component. But for the sake of argument, okay, just for the sake of argument and for a thought experiment, let's use these terms even though the Bible says it's not real. Y'all are with me on that, right? But we're gonna use these terms anyway, okay? So let's just do this for a second. Now, even if you are like a super Christian, right? Some of y'all are out there. Even if you're like super committed, like you're in, you're all in, and you're a student, you know, let's just just say, okay, so you're a student and maybe you spend four hours on a Sunday in religious activities. You're the type of person that actually goes to church and Sunday school. And then you come back to youth group and we put the commute in there as well. So there's a, there's a four hour block, you know. Now let's say, you know, you have an hour quiet time of day. And then let's say that you have another hour Bible study, you know, at some point during that week. Now that's 12 hours in a week that you're doing explicitly religious things. That's out of 168 hours. Now let's subtract eight hours of sleep a night, which is pretty conservative, right? I mean, y'all aren't sleeping eight hours a week, but let's be conservative. Subtract eight hours of sleep a night and you're left with 100 hours, even if you're like super duper committed, that's a, there's 100 hours left in your week that you're just doing other stuff. You're going to school, you're going to practice, you know, you're going to piano lessons, um, you're hanging out with your friends, you know, you're watching TV, that's 100 hours of that week. So here's a question for you. Where do you think you will have the most opportunities to grow and where do you think you'll have the most opportunities to impact other people? It is right there in the nuts and the bolts of the day-to-day just normal life. 
what we're tempted to kind of put on the sort of secular side of life that says that God doesn't really belong here. I've, I've kind of checked my God box with church and Sunday school and youth group and Bible study and, you know, uh, some quiet times. I've checked that box. Now I've got this whole other life over here to live without God. But it's just that. It's just that that's most impactful. It's just that place where you spend the biggest bulk of your life. It's how you interact with your classes. When you make decisions about whether or not your GPA is the most important thing in your life or whether living consistently with your faith is more important in your life. It's in whether you think of your life as a Christian as something that is purely private to you. It's just a, it's a private component to your life where you Decide whether this might be something that is good for your friends to know about you. And they need to know because it's also true for them as well and important for them. It's also in your social life. It's in your dating life. It's how you end up making decisions about your vocational life, what you're going to do with your life in the world. That's why Paul uses the word walk, right? You're just walking around with Jesus. That's what he's saying. You're walking around and Jesus is walking with you. And you know what? That's because of being saved by grace through faith. That's the whole thing about Ephesians 1 through 3. What, what Paul's tried to convince us of in those chapters is that when you come to Christ by faith, you are united to Christ. So literally, when you're walking around, Jesus is walking with you. We're walking around in our life with Christ in the nuts and the bolts and the mundane and the day-to-day joys and the day-to-day sorrows of life. And it's about failing. It's about messing up. And it's about repenting. It's about being restored. It's about being forgiven. It's about all of those things. It, 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 It is about Jesus convincing you that you are a beloved child in his eyes and nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord because he knows that the entire world is going to try to convince you completely otherwise. That every single day is going to be a battle of somebody saying you are not beautiful enough. You are just not good looking enough. You are not athletic enough. You are not smart enough. You're not talented enough. You're not athletic enough. You're not, you are not enough. But Jesus says, you are enough. I died for you. I died for you and I am enough. I am enough for you. And I'll walk with you. I'll walk around with you. I'll just go with you. That's what Paul is talking about here. It's a really wonderful and beautiful thing. And as you struggle with that, you know, as you, as you go off to college, and you will struggle with that. I mean, Shannon and I are two for two on kids having really difficult times in college. I, I assume we're going to go three for three, you know. As you struggle in that, I want you to know a couple of things. First, your church loves you deeply. We love you deeply. And you're not alone. You're going to go through hard things and you are not alone. Christ is with you. That's the whole thing. Christ is with you and we're with you. Ryan Dugan, our pastor for our our director for young adults is also our college student director. He's with you, there for you. Don't forget about us because we are not going to forget about you. 
That's the first thing. Second, let us help you get connected to the body of Christ wherever it is that you are going. I've been a pastor for 21 years and there are a lot of things that I don't know. But one thing that I do know is a bunch of people. I know a bunch of people, you know, where, where we're going. I, I know RUF campus ministers and pastors of churches, other students. We'd love to connect you. If you're, if you're moving to college, don't take that as a four-year break from the body of Christ. Go ahead and plug in. You're going to need that body. And if you're graduating from college and, you know, you're moving to a different city, we'd love to connect you with a church where you can grow spiritually. And if you're moving back to Houston graduating college, I want to say, welcome home. We want to be that place for you. We want to be that home for you. But I'll also whisper, and Ryan may come charge me and tackle me, and um, that might hurt, but I'm going to say this. Um, even if you're coming to Houston and you kind of want to follow your own way, and you want to find your own way, there are other good churches out there that are not Christ the King. Shh. But it's true. There are other churches in this city that deeply love Jesus and will provide community and a home for you. We can connect you to them. We care mostly that you are connected to the body of Christ, growing and being strengthened by him. Why? Why is connecting and remaining connected to the body of Christ so important? Well, that leads to our second and final point. Second, if you're saved by grace through faith, you're called also to walk counterculturally, consistent and counterculturally. And this, y'all, this is a beatdown. This is hard. I mean, this is really hard. This is where you start to feel alone and you start to feel exposed and you start to feel vulnerable and you start to feel like that if you actually start to manifest these things in your life that you're not gonna have any friends, that you're just gonna be like the the super kooky weirdo out there and nobody's gonna like you. It's hard and we need each other for this. And that is actually the thrust of Ephesians 4, is that Paul is saying that to walk consistently in this world requires the body of Christ. We're going to talk about that in the next couple of weeks as we keep going through Ephesians chapter 4. It requires the body of Christ. Because here he lists several distinguishing characteristics of a follower of Jesus. And the reason that I say that we're called to walk counterculturally is that you can see in these traits that their opposite are all the types of things that the world actually wants to produce in us. It is very countercultural. So here's what Paul talks about from verse 2. The, the, and actually, you can read about this with some more expanded detail in Galatians where Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, the things that the Spirit of God cultivates in us. First, he says, is humility. Humility is the opposite of pride. Pride puts you at the center of the universe. Pride says, hey, when something good happens, I'm responsible. And when something bad happens, somebody else is responsible. That is pride humility is simply seeing others as more important than yourself giving credit where credit is due and taking responsibility for your own failures even coming to the extent of being able to provide cover for other people when it's the right thing to do for their own failures we don't come by this naturally by nature theologically this is a work of the spirit gentleness gentleness is in short supply in our world It really is. Gentleness is the skill of recognizing the brokenness and the hurt in other human beings and treating them that way. 
with how you speak and act, where you mend that brokenness, where you mend those wounds, where you don't just kind of keep ripping them open, you know, another centimeter at a time. Gentleness is what, is what the prophet Isaiah said about Jesus. A bruised reed he will not break. Now this is countercultural because what does our world do? Our world goes picking up sticks and snapping them over our legs all the time. We're breaking bruised reeds left and right constantly, you know? But gentleness is bringing repair with how you speak to others, with how you interact with others, with how you care for others. Again, we don't come by this naturally. It's a work of the Spirit. Patience. In this context, Paul is talking about our posture toward other people. Uh, patience is a virtue uh, uh, of waiting you know, on God to provide as well. But really he's talking here about patience with other people. So that we're not constantly looking at other people and going, why don't you just get your act together? What is wrong with you? Like, come on, stop it. You know, let's go. But patience is being able to see another person with eyes that have been redeemed by Jesus. And what's on the backside of that eye is, I am the chief of sinners. I, Clay, am the chief of sinners. Why would I expect you know, why would, I, why, why would I expect something different? Why don't I spend 99% of my energy, you know, kind of pulling the log out of my own eye before I spend that 1% of energy, you know, trying to, you know, get a microscope and find the speck in your eye. Patience is interacting with other people knowing that you are the chief of sinners, that it's not all about them changing. You know, we often think in our friendships, and we do this in marriage a lot. You know, in marriage, you know, what, what are we really thinking? If you would just fix yourself, we would be so happy. If you would just get your act together, it would all be, no. If I would get my act together, maybe that would make a difference. That's patience. Love, the chief of Christian virtues. The posture of actively giving yourself up for the good and thriving of another human being. And then... He says something interesting here. Maintaining unity in the bonds of peace. Now in the context of the life of the church, which is the immediate context of the letter to the Ephesians, unity, unity is the commitment of a diverse group of people with diverse opinions on secondary and tertiary matters to focus their attention on what is primary and to do everything possible not to allow those secondary and tertiary matters to define our fellowship. That was a bit of a mouthful of a sentence. But unity does not mean that you don't believe, every, you know, that you can believe whatever it is that you want to believe and we're all okay. That's not what Paul is talking about. Paul is saying that if you are uh, committed to the confession and profession of faith that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he lived a perfect life, that he died a substitutionary death for you on the cross, that he rose again for your salvation, that this is real and this is true, that if you have that common confession, you can have diverse opinions about a lot of other things and still have true, warm, loving fellowship with one another. 
Now, here Paul placed a verb in front of the spirit-produced virtue of unity. He didn't just say, like he said with patience, hey, we should pursue patience. He didn't just say unity. He said maintaining unity. And one of the things that that signals is that it is very clear that unity among the people of God is a very fragile thing. It's like, it's like you know, like crystal. It's, it's super fragile. It's easily broken. And this is the place that the devil wants to attack. And what Paul is saying by using this word maintaining unity is that it requires constant vigilance and commitment, you know, a, a constant reminder to ourselves that as long as we are focused on Christ and his kingdom that we can and we will have diverse opinions on what are truly non-essential issues, you know. There, there are reasons why it became a euphemism that churches split over the color of the carpet. Probably because some churches split over the color of the carpet. You know, those kind of things that are secondary and tertiary issues. That while engaging the world with wisdom is important, those things are important, it is important to engage our world as Christians, those kinds of things can't be allowed to define our fellowship. If they could... If they could actually be allowed to define our fellowship, the letter to the Ephesians would not exist. Have you ever thought about that? The fact that Paul is writing to a church of Jews and Gentiles and he's trying to convince them to be unified uh, in Christ because all of the things that they're starting to, you know, kind of to latch on to are secondary issues that shouldn't define their fellowship. I mean, just go read 1 Corinthians. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. Go read Galatians. Hey, Jews, stop making those Gentiles be circumcised. That's leading them away from Christ, you know? Let's talk, let's focus on Jesus. None of these letters would actually exist um, if, if unity around a central confession wasn't important. I truly believe that being eager to maintain unity in the bonds of peace with our fellow believers in the world and also in our church is the most powerful witness that we have to the transformative power of the gospel. And I mean that in our day and age right now because in our day and age right now, it's all about polarization. It's all about moving farther away. It's all about choosing sides. It's all about who our friends are and who our enemies are. It's all about what we're against. It's all about that. And if a group of people with diverse opinions on different things in life can come together and can love one another, can disagree on something, but can you know show up with flowers and a meal and a hug and a prayer when somebody's dad dies the world looks into that and says a that's kooky what in the world and b that's a little beautiful like where can i get some of that because this other thing out here is not really working for me it's just making me stressed and anxious and angry all the time that's why being eager to maintain unity in the bonds of peace Paul's going to spend a lot of time talking about, about that because it's a, way, it's a way of the church manifesting the truth of the gospel to the world. Many years ago, I'm close with this, many years ago, I think I might have been in college. Well, in college, I took a class the last semester of my senior year. I was glad I took this class because it kept me engaged in something, you know, at that time. It was a multidisciplinary class that was centered on the theme of the Mississippi River. And so multidisciplinary because it talked about engineering and it talked about music, you know, from the Mississippi Delta. It talked about uh, art. It talked about literature, you know, all these things that were kind of like thematic 
dramatically surrounded by the river. And then I read this book about the, the great Mississippi River flood of 1927. It was called Rising Tide. Fascinating book. Love that book. Maybe one of my favorites. Somebody, like I think it was the new members class that said, what's your favorite book? And I didn't think about that one, but that would be, that would be, on, the, uh, that'd be on the list. But one of the things that I didn't know that I learned in that class, and he talks about in the book, is that the Army Corps of Engineers spends all of its time, essentially, other than trying to keep the river from flooding and, you know, destroying property, it spends all of its time trying to keep the Mississippi River running in its current channel. The Mississippi River actually does not anymore want to go to New Orleans. It actually doesn't. And if it bypassed New Orleans, it would like completely, you know, it would completely destroy the economy of that entire city. The Mississippi River, if the Army Corps of Engineers left it alone and it just went where it wanted to do, you know, that it did for thousands of years with flooding and all kinds of things, it would bypass going to New Orleans. It would actually go into the Atchafalaya River north and west, way north and west of New Orleans. It would flood a ton of stuff on the way there. It would be horrible you know, for people who live there. So the Army Corps of Engineers, through locks and dams and levees and, you know, all kinds of other, you know, shenanigans. uh, It's not shenanigans. I mean, I like New Orleans, so I'm glad the river goes there. But through all kinds of other means, keeps the river going where it is. It's It's a constant maintenance project. And that really is, you know, instructive for us. If we, did, we're not, if we did not maintain unity and we just decided, oh, we'll just let this river go wherever it's going to want to go, well, it's going to go into division. It's going to go into divisiveness because that is our nature as human beings. And it would be tempting at this point to say, okay, team, let's get out there and go maintain some unity. You know, let's get to work. Let's get this thing done. But that's really not where we are. That's really not what we're talking about because we would fail at this. But there is one who never fails, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you trust in him by faith, it is true that everything that he has done is applied to you. And one of the things that he has done is that he has broken down the walls of hostility, first between you and God, and second, but importantly, between you and each other and fellow believers in Christ. You've been saved by grace. You've been saved by grace. You've been saved by grace. The result of this is a transformed life that is consistent and countercultural. It fits and starts with repentance and forgiveness that testifies to that work of Christ in you and also among us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your work, and we do pray. Uh, that you would continue it until you return. We ask it in your name. Amen.